to the Momnificent Podcast. This is the place where we help parents live a happy, healthy life with their kids. We're going to show you how to connect with your child and help them even in their most difficult moments as we hear from experts in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Karen Jakubowski, an international speaker, public school principal, and former struggling student. The Momnificent Podcast equips parents with science-based strategies to help you live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome. Has your life grown stale? Do you miss the fun of your younger years? Well, check this out. I have a fun expert as a guest on our show today. Michael Rooker is also author of The Fun Habit and talks about how the disciplined pursuit of joy and wonder can change your life. Michael is an organizational psychologist, behavioral scientist, and charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And in his 20s, he even swept floors on the television show Baywatch. Here's another crazy fact about him that I love. He crashed the stage with Liz Taylor at a Cannes festival. So funny. He has this picture on his website of the newspaper clipping where he's literally standing right behind Liz Taylor. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. Michael, welcome to Momnificent. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And where are you enjoying Momnificent from today? I am in North Carolina, the Greensboro area. Yeah. A little south of me. So you still have a little bit of warm weather, right? Yeah, it's actually been nice lately because we've been getting, like a lot of folks in the South, been getting a lot of rain. I'm, uh, I grew up in California and my parents are still in the Sacramento area, so they've been, uh, you know, so dry there. It's sort of this weird dichotomy where this has been one of the wettest summers for us here in the South and, you know, they really need the water out there. So it's. Right. Yeah. Crazy how that happens. So, Michael, what's one thing you've done recently that maybe you haven't done for a while that just brings you joy? Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously, because I've been at this a while, I I have I feel like I have a pretty well tuned life with with regards to fun. So but one thing that I have been doing lately has been trying to reconnect with friends. So. Um, I've been having a few minor health issues and just uh, being reminded, you know, I just recently turned 50, so I'm trying to do all the right things, you know, and one of those is uh, habitually going on a 30-minute walk every day, Um, but I have this strategy that I talk about in in the book called activity bundling, and I hadn't really been doing that, and so now when I go on my walks, generally I was listening to music or um, audible, and now I'm really trying to make a concerted effort to um, connect with old friends, um, mainly because, you know, so many of us lost contact during the pandemic. I think we all sort of levitated towards social media and that was a way to stay connected, but it wasn't real one-on-one connection and, and sort of sharing those intimate moments that you necessarily wouldn't share with the public, but are very meaningful between one-on-one interactions. So that's something that I've really been mindful about instead of you know, listening to a podcast or an audio book, really biasing more towards um, connecting with friends, you know, even if it, I'm having to schedule it, like, hey, Luke, I'm going to go on a walk at 1.30, you know, would you have that time? And if he's like, no, I, I'll schedule my walk at three. So really trying to accommodate, you know, folks that have busy lives. And you, generally, when you kind of put, you know, your good foot forward, they'll reciprocate, you know, like, wow, okay, you're going to make time for me. And um, that's been a nice upward spiral to really you know, um, reconnect with folks that are really meaningful to me. 
That's so awesome. And the difference in probably how you feel differently after having that connection, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it always pays, you know, not that you're looking for dividends or relationships should be transactional. But again, I think, you know, it starts this sort of wave of reciprocation. And so um, these connections get strengthened again, you know, so many that kind of gotten loose um, because we're all sort of falling down Maslow's triangle, right? And then we're all kind of scared and nervous. And so a lot of times that makes people turn inward. And I think now that we all feel a bit safer, you know, it's time to sort of climb our way out of um, these holes and, and reconnect with one, one yeah. another. And that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. So you are a father of kids that are getting closer to their teens now, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. And my daughter certainly acts like one. <laughs> <laughs> Right, way older than they probably should. And how did your book, The Fun Habit, Habit come about? Um, so in I've always been um, a big zealot of positive psychology. You had mentioned that in the bio. Uh, I got access to it early on. An early mentor of mine is a gentleman by the name of Michael Gervais, who's kind of made a name for himself. He has a, a nice podcast himself called Finding Mastery. And um, he was the sports psychologist uh, for the Seattle Seahawks, but I was fortunate enough to get him while I believe he was still getting his clinical hours as a, as a psychologist. And so he introduced me to Marty Seglaman and Charles Garfield and Cheek Sent Me High um, before they even had kind of coalesced uh, into, you know, a Congress. And so I started following these folks and really got passionate about um, positive psych and positive psych served me well up until about 2016. Um, and I guess what's important in that too is that at the time I was living in San Francisco and was also part of the kind of uh, quantified self community. So not only was I practicing all this positive psych um, tools and strategies and tactics, but I was also like kind of being a nerd about it and like tracking my happiness, looking for correlations, looking if I did certain things, you know, like would they increase my happiness? And I, I got kind of weird about it. Um, but then in 2016, I had a couple of unfortunate events. One was my younger brother passed away suddenly from a pulmonary embolism, so sort of out of the blue. And then unrelated a couple of months later, um, I found out I had advanced osteoarthritis. And this was after almost over a decade of amateur endurance sport. So I'd done a couple of Ironman, a couple half Ironman and really enjoyed running. It was the primary mechanism for mitigating anxiety. Um, you know, really the way I kept myself mentally healthy, uh, I think probably was better for me for my mental health and my physical health. And um, because of that, uh, I, I was told I could never run again. I had to get an early hip replacement. And when you get a hip replacement before your 50s, they're essentially car parts, right? And so um, if you're going to live a long time and you get one young, they ask you not to do high impact sport, which running is one of those, or you likely would have to get um, uh, it remediated later in life, which has a lot worse outcome, right? Because now they're cutting in scar tissue and stuff. So I had to accept the fact that I wasn't going to run again. And I was also mourning my brother's death. But here I am, this zealot of positive psychology. And I'm like, well, I can will myself to be happy, right? And I realized, um, you know, now with the power of hindsight, I realized that the more that I was doing that, I was actually making myself more unhappy. And I think luckily I was 
aware enough to kind of realize this was happening, you know, the more that I was trying to like be grateful for things in a time that I really should have been mourning and really overly concerned with this concept of happiness and why, you know, that why can I just accept things as they were? Um, I started to unpack that. And I was, I think through serendipity, there was emerging science that especially here in the Western world, that folks that are overly concerned with happiness and so not necessarily valuing happiness, which I still overtly do and I think is a, a good thing. You know, I, I think we should support human flourishing and, and wanting people to be happy. But people that are overly concerned about their own happiness actually are some of the most unhappy people. It often leads to mental illness or at least has a high correlation. So we don't know if you know people that are predisposed to mental illness tend to be concerned about their own happiness or vice versa. But we do know for sure that it is um, an ill-fated habit. And I had kind of fallen victim to that. And so um, I quickly realized that if some of these positive psychology interventions that weren't appropriate in that moment couldn't help me, then what could I do? And so I started digging into this research of, you know, how can we use fun and play to sort of mitigate negative experiences? And um, most of that work like came from education. And so I found this huge research gap, which is an amazing, it's like finding gold, right? Like for a researcher and academic, I found this big research gap in utilizing action-oriented approaches for inviting more joy and delight into your life. And so it was something that I latched on and I kind of been reaching, you know, researching it ever since because I used it in, in my own life to sort of get through that, that period of malaise. And um, so why I think it's important, right, is that we now know, especially, um, you know, in the last 10 years that, uh, you know, through science like broad and build theory, you know, Barbara Fredrickson's work and others that we don't necessarily want to over-optimize um, what science calls positive emotions, right? Like we need a wide breadth of emotion to be able to build resilience because if we never experience the downsides or sort of accept them and understand how to live in those moments, then we'll get walloped when they do happen. And that's sort of what happened to me. But that a lot of us also undervalue the agency and autonomy we have that even if we are living in a time you know, a time of loss, whether that's divorce or, or, you know, leaving an area that you're familiar with or the loss of a loved one, you know, where the appropriate affect and emotion tends to be on the negative side of valence, you know, which is um, just a geeky way of saying, you know, that you, you, happiness isn't an appropriate response for those particular life events, that you can still organize your life in a way where you can still smile and still connect with folks, you know, that bring in feelings of, um, you know, happiness and pleasure and still have this appropriate time in your life where you're also, you know, getting over a traumatic experience. Mm. Oh, wow. You, you said so much there. And I want to back up to the, one of the first things you said, because maybe we have a listener today and they aren't as familiar with the term positive psychology. How would you define that in like layman's terms? Yeah, so positive sight came about because clinical psychology had really always been about treating people, right? And so, you know, some of the folks, the early folks like Diener and Cheek Set Me High, and, and some folks might not know who Cheek Set Me High is, but he is the grandfather of flow. So if you've ever heard of flow state, he's the one that did all the geeky science behind it to kind of prove it as a 
you know, an authentic construct. And so these folks had um, early on, you know, I don't know how deep you want to go in the history, but to make a long story short, uh, it was really um, Marty Seglman that had had brought it forth and kind of coalesced the science as a discipline. And it was a group of psychologists that wanted to look at how could you use psychological tools to take someone who might not necessarily be um, seeking out clinical treatment for a deficit, but using aspects of psychology to actually make their lives better. And so in short, you know, uh, clinical psychology is usually to treat a deficit like depression or anxiety or some sort of mental disorder and positive psychology are tools to make someone who might be at a baseline, you know, I, I try not to use the word normal anymore because what does normal mean, right? But at the baseline of something that we would think is normalized and, you know, get themselves to a better place. Mm. Um, but even in that in and of itself for any psychologist listening is problematic because all of these things are then on a scale, right? And so that's something that I unpack in the book is that, you know, ultimately we're never meant to optimize to a certain thing. Like, you know, there's always something better out there that that's why happiness um, sometimes we refer to it as the hedonic treadmill, right? Because we really are, um, you know, part of evolution's um, purpose for pleasure is because we need to do certain things to live, but then that's meant to dissipate so that we go out and do it again, right? Things like eating high calorie dense food or something as pleasurable as procreating, right? Like these things are meant to be fleeting so that we continue to do them because if, you know, if that was an ever present um, uh, act of pleasure, then, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't strive, right? And so anyways, again, probably too long winded of an answer, but positive sites purposes to, you know, create psychological tools that help us to do things better rather than um, treat deficits. Yeah, that's so good. And who would you say your book is written for? Yeah, I think it's anyone that's sort of, you know, the, the three areas that I look at are burnout, boredom, um, or loneliness, right? And so I think the majority is going to be burnt out, right? Especially for that sandwich generation where our lives are just overprescribed and we feel that everything comes from the sense of duty. Like you're not finding joy in raising your kids your interactions with your parents just feel like, you know, you're trying to get to the next day. And, you know, at work, you know, especially if you're in knowledge work, you don't really know what the finish line is, right? So the first act is kind of creating that space so that you can start integrating things that are meaningful to you back in your life. And then sort of some advanced strategies of figuring out, okay, how do I reframe these moments, you know, with my kids, because I can co-create these experiences with them. It's not that I have to sit there at the park on my phone and kind of just wait out the two hours because, you know, that's my job. Like I can actually take them and do something that I like, you know, as long as it's something that they agree to too, because that's what they would do with their friends. Like if their friends were doing something they didn't like, that wouldn't be their friends anymore. So like, why can't parents use that same logic? Right. So yeah. it's just a host of different, you know, sort of eye-opening um, ideals, you know, that come out in the book, like, Hey, you know, you don't even necessarily need to change your circumstance. There are just certain things that you can do time and time again that are going to start to reintegrate joy and delight into your life. 
I love that you shared that because it made me think of a conversation I literally had just this week with a grandmother who lives with her daughter and her daughter's kids in their house. And she made this comment to me and it made me think of it in our interview today. She said, she said, Karin, my grandkids don't even laugh much anymore. They're so serious. And that just makes me sad because, um, you, you talk about the rarely examined benefits of fun and how can we help our kids or how could I even help this grandmother who might even listen to this podcast as I shared with her? How can we help our kids lighten up? How, how can we help them laugh and not be so serious? Yeah, so when I hear you you know, ask this question, I, I saw this meme recently that I think applies here and I, I just really love it. So it's this mom and child and she's talking to um, another parent and child. They're, they're both on a bench and the child's reading. And she's like, how did you get your daughter to read? And the mom is looking bewildered and she has a book in her hand too. And the mom asking that mom has a phone in her hand and the child has a tablet and is playing on the tablet, right? And so, you know, the punchline or the moral of that, that cartoon is that Children are sponges. I mean, you know, one of the tenets of anyone that's taken a psychology 101 class, you know, even in high school is that we all model behavior of folks that we admire and children admire their parents. And so it's not necessarily saying this grandma's doing anything wrong, but I think if you're seeing uh, a lack of behavior from your child that you would like to elicit, the best strategy for doing that is figuring out how can we co-create an environment and circumstances that are going to get us all laughing. So maybe that's, okay. you know, a comedy show that's appropriate for a child, or maybe that's playing a game that you know is going to be, you know, super silly, like pie in the face is a game that we enjoy <laughs> here at the house or another one that we just love. It's impossible not to laugh. It's so silly is that one um, where, uh, you know, instead of playing charades, you have to, you um, uh, speak out what the thing is with uh, that dental apparatus in your mouth. Have you ever played that? And you just can't get oh. words out. It's it's bananas. And it's just so impossible not to laugh. So, I mean, you know, because I, I do you know, these, not to villainize social media, because I always try to, you know, sort of roll that back. It's, it, you know, these things are tools, but they are built to capitalize on attention because they are, capitalist machines, right? Their products are attention because they make their money on gaining your attention. And so, especially if a child is overprescribed to that, um, you know, then you need to figure out ways to mitigate it. And the primary, not to use a geeky word again, but the primary intervention to do so is model the behavior that you would like to see in them. I mean, that's just, it, it's an easy thing to do. And you know, it has added benefits because you're going to end up laughing as well, you know, and a lot of times you see behavior in other people that you actually, you know, want to see in yourself. So not that this grandma it, it falls into that category, but, you know, um, you know, mirroring and modeling are, are, are very, you know, basic psychological concepts, right? We often tend to see things in others that we'd like to see in ourselves as well, both negative and positive. So. Yeah, I hope this grandmother hears this and, and takes her kids to a comedy show or buys one of these silly games at Target and starts, starts yes. creating laughter with her grandkids. 
Absolutely. And the word model, um, when you said that, or the mirrors, because I always say our kids are mirrors of us. So like whatever we are doing, they're going to be end up doing the same exact thing, whether the behavior or um, like you said, the reading or it, if the phone is, is the important thing, that's what they're going to learn. That's the important thing um, over reading. Uh, can you describe one of your parenting failures and what you learned from it? Oh my goodness. So it's a favorite. I'm sure if people have heard me before, they've heard this one, but it, it's a favorite of mine. So I wanted to be the dad of the year. And uh, uh, I don't believe my son was born yet, or if he was, he was still just months old, but my daughter was um, four, I believe. And she really loved uh, the movie Tangled. And for a long time, I wanted to go to a lantern festival because I had heard was this really spiritual event and um, you know just really majestic, and so I told my wife, I'm like, you know, we're gonna go on a father daughter trip. I'm gonna take her out to the desert in, in Nevada. Um, there's this amazing uh, festival called Rise where they do these lanterns, and and my wife was all for it, and so we you know drove all night to Nevada from I think we were staying at my in laws in in LA. Um, ended up in Vegas. So that was, that's a whole nother story we could say for another time. Um, <laughs> and uh, we went to the Rides Festival. And one of the mistakes that I made is that I went with a preconceived notion of how I wanted the night to go. I wanted Sloan to understand that this was really meaningful. It was exactly as it was um, advertised. You know, they had all this kind of trance music and you know, people were writing like really meaningful things on their lanterns. We had talked to a few people, you know, that were mourning loss. So they were writing, you know, messages of, of um, grief, you know, that were meant to go out in the air and kind of release from their bodies. So there was some deep meaning there. There was also a lot of joy because it was, you know, kind of a really cool event and certainly a lot of joy around Sloan because she was being, you know, she was essentially a toddler and doing what toddlers were doing, right? She was introducing herself to everyone and um, but meanwhile, she's also trampling all over their blankets. You know, these are lanterns that have, you know, a flammable component and she's kind of getting near, you know, fire. And so I'm trying to reel her in. No one else seems to be bothered by her, but I, I certainly am. Right. And slowly but surely, I let the fact that she had her own preconceived notions of how she wanted to go affect mine because I had never really asked her, you know, what she wanted to get out of it. And so by the end, you know, we, we let off the lantern and it was fun. And obviously, you know, her being young, um, they only let you do one, you know, because it's really meant to be this one kind of big release. And immediately after it was done, she was asking for another one. And at that point, I just lost my mind and I was like, kind of done with it. And I thought like the whole, you know, night had been ruined. And so we got into a food line, you know, because we, we had to get food. You know, at this point it was late and we hadn't even eaten dinner. And the food line was like obnoxiously long. I think we waited like for 40 minutes and one minute before getting, you know, to the window to, to order our food. She's like, daddy, I gotta go pee. And oh I was like, gosh, no, yeah. I'm like, we can't, we're about to get our food. And she's like, daddy, I really gotta go. And I, I said those immortal, you know, three, two words, you know, no, three words. Yeah. Just hold it. And of course, like, right. When we got to the window, she, she peed her pants oh, and I was like, man. and it all just washed over me how incredibly 
ignorant I had been, right? Like I hadn't set us up for success because I went in there because it was supposed to be my night and her accompanying it. But she's a little kid. You know, that wasn't her problem at all. I'm the one with wisdom, right? And it could have been a total magic night if I had built in that and kind of asked her what she wanted to do and realized that I was also, you know, in essence, co-creating a space that would be appropriate for a four-year-old where there's certainly opportunities there. You know, I didn't get us in a situation where that wouldn't have been. I just wanted to all go my way. And because it didn't, I ruined the night for both of us. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, at, in that moment, we both got really adult and I kind of confessed that I had really screwed things up. And, you know, because she's amazing, she immediately uh, accepted my apology. And so I hoisted her up, you know, urine and all on my shoulders and walked back to the parking lot. And we enjoyed our food while kind of laughing all the way back to our car. So, you know, I redeemed myself in the end, but it's certainly one of my biggest parenting fails. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with us because even like what you said earlier, like life, life is it is wonderful at times. It is the most difficult thing at times. And it's in sometimes in those most difficult moments that it really builds that character in you. And I think sometimes we paint a picture of what life should or could be, or, or maybe as parents we're like, well, I don't want my kid to have the life I had growing up. And so some of that, I don't even think is a benefit to our kid because it's really in the times of lack when you don't have things or you have to work hard or things aren't like the bed of roses. That is what builds who you are today that makes up everything that you bring to the table of a well-rounded person. Um, and so what is, what's one of the best pieces of advice you received that you want to leave our listeners with today? Maybe it's something you live by. Yeah. So well, it's funny in the context of this story, I just had an amazing interview um, with a professor out of uh, the University of Colorado. Her name's Samira, and she passed this on to me um, from another person. So I guess that's what wisdom does is wisdom does, right? Um, and it was that there's no extra credit in the struggle. And even though I guess at first blush, that sounds a little bit negative, I really took it as this amazing positive, right? Because it Kind of feeds into what you just said and that is that so many of us when things go wrong kind of want that extra credit like oh my gosh well i set all this up right and i've kind of learned from that mistake like to your point i think very much so my parents were both professors um and you know when tenure was still important so i didn't see them a lot and i am trying um you know in my own way to make up for what i thought was lacking at, at you know um when i was a child but when things don't go my way, I don't beat myself up anymore because there is no extra credit in the struggle. Like if you, you know, find yourself in these situations, you need to find what they mean to you and you are able to create that. And so having emotional flexibility becomes really important because once you understand that breadth, then it allows you to snap back that much quicker. But I think if you get kind of wallowed down, like, why are all of these things happening to me, you know, like, and sort of hold that weight and aren't able to let it go, then finding joy and delight become that much more problematic. And so the way I often refer to it is agency and autonomy. We generally, you know, we're a product of our choices. And oftentimes the results of those choices are things completely out of our control. That's just life, right? So I think that's where a lot of self-help fails because yes, 
we are the product of our choices, but a lot of times we can make the right choices time and time again, and then just circumstance punches us in the face, right? But yeah. we often have a lot more agency and autonomy of how we deal with those circumstances than we believe. And again, you know, it, you know, if you look at parenting as dutiful, where you're always kind of on the clock versus co-creating playful moments with your kids where you take back a little bit of that control and tell your child, well, hey, I don't really like this, like watching you play Hot Wheels for two hours. But what I would like to do is go on a hike. Would that be appropriate? And maybe they'll compromise like, okay, well, I don't want to walk for two hours, but if we end up in the playground for the second half, that would be great, right? It's really just taking that extra step and realizing that, you know, things don't go your way, you know, kind of having that growth mindset, right? Like, okay, well, this didn't work, shoot, but we can make it work better and learn from this previous experience. So yeah, um, I think that's the one that I'm playing with right now. And I think it's extremely powerful. And I love how you say, uh, parents, to have fun with your kid doesn't mean you have to play Candyland with them for two hours. <laughs> I love that example that you give. And that's exactly what you were just saying. Like, if you can compromise and if you can just be real with what you enjoy, what they enjoy, and find that medium, you're going to find something together that you actually are going to get something out of it. It's going to be fun and rewarding. Well, yeah, and I know I've geeked out a lot on the science already, so I hope I didn't bore your audience. <laughs> but it's um, all good. To move really quick through some of the science behind that, it's it, it's uh, referred to as transactional analysis. And all I would say is it doesn't matter that you know the science, but that as a general rule, we believe that as adults we operate in three different spaces, right? A childlike space, a parent-like space, and an adult-like space. And just too often, and this comes from original research I did, but has been replicated, too often we just get stuck in that parental role and we don't allow ourselves to get back in a playful state. So like even when we're in something like a science museum or a children's museum where it's appropriate to co-play with your kid and sort of, you know, live in this a world of awe and wonder, instead we turn it into homework and we're like, oh no, you know, you really should build the house this way because all houses need a window. Like, why not let your kid lead a little bit, you know? Or why not just enjoy it and co-create and, and realize they're not doing anything wrong. They're just being a five-year-old in this space. And then when you want them to be architects, you can start deciding where the windows go. Yes, yes. Oh, this is so good. Well, Michael, thank you so much for sharing um, your story with us today. And uh, thank you for... Uh, all the effort and research that you did putting into this book that can really be such a help uh, for so many of us, parents, even educators, grandparents even, and those who work with kids. Um, and how can someone find and follow you? Yeah, so um, my website's michaelrucker.com. I'm on Instagram under the wonder of fun. And um, yeah, those are the, the two main places. The wonder of fun. I love that. Well, thank you again for your time this evening, and I look forward to speaking with you again soon. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Hey there, it's Karn. I hope that you're enjoying the show. And by the way, if you're a mom who wants to learn how to help your child when they're struggling behaviorally or facing challenges in school, get started today by getting my free short video course, Three Steps to Happy Healthy Kids at www.educationalimpactacademy.com 
forward slash free video. If you're new here or you haven't done this yet, this is definitely the first step to get started in learning how to have a happy, healthy life with your kids. So head on over to www.educationalimpactacademy.com forward slash free video and grab your free gift today. Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember, don't worry, be happy.